In case you didn't know, there is an Olympic event which is known as race walking. That's right. Athletes who are apparently really, really good at walking, they compete to see who's the fastest walker of them all. And while the competition is somewhat stiff, to say the least, uh, it's also an event that's brought out the worst in many people. And I know what you're thinking. You're, you're wondering if there's doping going into this. No, no. We're not talking about doping and race walking. No, instead, uh, it was back in the, the year 2000 at the Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. That's when a race walker named Jane Seville, she was disqualified just a few hundred meters from a gold medal in the 20-kilometer walk, and according to the Olympic judge who disqualified her, Seville lost contact with the ground for a millisecond, thereby constituting her as a runner rather than a walker. And what this technically means here is that she wasn't walking according to the rules of the event. She wasn't walking worthy of the race walking event. Well, it's in a similar yet spiritual fashion that there are many Christians who end up being disqualified from their spiritual walk. And the reason why is because they stopped walking in a way that is worthy of our calling. With that being the case, we'd all do well to examine our spiritual walk just to make sure that we don't end up getting disqualified. And with this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering how those who walk worthy are exceeding in faith. Secondly, we'll consider how those who walk worthy of this Christian calling are expanding in love. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider how those who walk worthy of the Christian calling are enduring in patience. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand how we ought to walk worthy of our calling. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this book by presenting the original recipients with his classic greeting. And that classic uh, greeting, it included the salutations of both grace and peace. And, 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 and in that, we, we consider how Paul challenged the Christians there in Thessalonica to become victorious and gracious and harmonious Christians. But now we find Paul, he's switching gears as he commends the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they were walking worthy of their Christian calling. Well, with this as, the, as our focus here, uh, let's pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, here Paul writes, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, uh, this sentence continues on for a few more verses. It's one of those uh, pregnant sentences of Paul. And, and so I just decided I'm going to cut this sentence in half and focus in here on the first half of this sentence. And it's here in these verses where we find Paul. He's commending the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they had become believers who were walking worthy of their kingdom calling. Just to be clear, I should remind you that the kingdom of God is everything that our king rules over. The kingdom of God is, it refers to everything that our king is ruling over. And, and while this most certainly includes the kingdom of heaven, where Christ is currently seated at the throne of grace, this also includes every Christian church on the planet today, which is supposed to serve as an earthly embassy for our, uh, uh, for our God's kingdom. And, and what this means then is that every Christian ought to be serving our Savior as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. That's right, Christian. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 20 where he declares, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Christian, listen, we've been called to serve our Savior 
as the ambassadors of his holy kingdom. With that being the case, you know, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when the servants of Satan set out to stop us from spreading the good news. You see, the, the servants of Satan don't want us to be effective ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And while it's true that the enemy will do everything they can to attack the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, well, it's also true that we've been called to walk worthy of our calling as we continue to represent the kingdom. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the example which was set by the original recipients of this epistle. If you would look with me again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want you to back up and look with me there at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Paul is saying, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful for your example, brethren. And the reason why? It's because of the way that their faith was growing. Now, just to be clear about their faith here, it'll help you to know that the word faith, it's translated from a Greek word which refers to a firmly held conviction that something is true. If you really believe that something is true, you're talking about faith. Uh, For example, you know, the atheist who insists that there is no such thing as God, they have incredible faith. And I would say that's more faith than I can muster up because there's no way that I could look at the entire universe and think, yeah, that's a big accident. Yeah, nothing blew up and became the entire universe. That's way more faith than I could ever muster. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Or how about the agnostic who insists that, well, we really can't know if there is a God or not. And so they place their great faith in what? In their ignorance. That's why agnostic actually stems, you know, or actually uh, gives way to the Latin ignoramus and You know, that's a faith that I personally can't muster either. In a Christian context, the word faith is the confident conviction that the God of the Bible exists. And not only that the God of the Bible exists, but he's the creator of the universe and the king of all kings. As I consider what the scriptures say about our creator and as as I consider what it would take for, uh, you know, nothing to become something, uh, I have to believe that uh, the, the most reasonable faith is the faith that leads us to embrace the God of the Bible. And not only that, but the Christian faith is also the confident conviction that leads us to believe that God the Father sent his only begotten son to atone for our sins by becoming our substitutionary sacrifice. Or in other words, he took our place on the cross, receiving the punishment that we deserve so that then we could be saved by the grace we don't deserve. At the same time, the Christian faith is also based on the belief that Jesus Christ is the one who has fulfilled the messianic prophecies. As a matter of fact, It's a study of the Messianic prophecies that led me to believe that Jesus really is the incarnate Son of God. And the reason why is because of the probable, or the improbable, uh, considering the, the, the compound law of probabilities of one man fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, it's completely improbable. It would never naturally happen. And therefore, uh, just, just based on the, uh, the probabilities, based in the messianic prophecies, I have no doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Therefore, he's the only begotten Son of God who alone is able to save the sinners who trust in him. This is my faith. To sum it up simply, The Christian faith is the confidence that leads us to rest in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which alone is able to save us from the righteous wrath of God. And while it's true that we're saved by faith and by faith alone, well, it's also true that saving faith is much more than simple intellectual assent. Now, to explain what I mean, I want to consider the way that James describes the difference between saving faith and intellectual assent. And so if you would hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. And specifically, let's turn to James chapter 2. Now, as you're making your way to the second chapter of James, I just want to spend a second assuring you of the fact that saving faith is a conviction that will lead the Christian to step up and start serving our Savior. In other words, if you have a true faith in Jesus Christ, then that faith will lead you to begin serving Jesus Christ. 
And this is much different from the intellectual assent uh, uh, that's found in the life of the person who intellectually gives assent to all the facts surrounding Jesus Christ, but it doesn't move them to, to, to serve him in any form or fashion. And I want to consider how James describes the difference here in James chapter 2. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 14, here James asks, What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Or or a better rendering of that would be this. Can that kind of faith save him? And then he says this. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, it's important to understand that James is not saying faith plus works equals salvation. That's how many of the Christian cults take this verse, and they are quick to go to this passage and and insist that, oh, well, it's faith plus works. And that's how you get saved. You have to have a little bit of faith and a whole lot of works. And then if you, if you mix it together just right, then you can get saved. Nope, that's not what James is saying. He's not saying faith plus works equals salvation. He's saying that faith without works is not really faith. If your faith doesn't lead to good works, then it's just intellectual assent comparative to the, the way that demons believe in Jesus Christ. You have to understand that demons believe in Jesus. They know that Jesus exists. The fallen angels understand that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And yet it's just intellectual assent. They know the facts of these, of these truths. But, but they don't embrace Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. No, they reject Jesus. In similar fashion, there are many who give intellectual assent to the facts surrounding the gospel of grace, but it's not real saving faith. And the evidence of this is found in the fact that it's not a belief that leads them to serve our Savior in any way. So James here is helping his audience to understand that the faith that can actually save is a faith that will then lead us to start serving our Savior. And in contrast to this, those who have faith that fails to manifest as good works well, they appear to have what James calls a dead faith, which is, again, comparable to the belief of demons. That being the case, well, James here challenges believers to demonstrate their faith through the way that we serve our Savior. And then as we serve our Savior, our faith continues to expand as we continue engaging in more and more good works. I like the way that Paul put it. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's verses 8 through 10, where Paul declares this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here we find Paul reminding his readers about the gracious gift of forgiveness. It's a free gift that is received by faith and by faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the basis for our belief in the doctrines of sola gratia and sola fide, which simply stated means that we're saved by faith alone, according to God's grace alone. And while it's true that our salvation is received by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same faith will lead us to live our lives for the Lord as we engage in the good works that God has prepared for us. Simply put, born-again believers are saved by faith and by faith alone. And at the same time, those who have truly been saved by, by, by grace through faith, 
they will begin to demonstrate the evidence of their saving faith as they, as they begin to engage in the good works that God has prepared for us. And, and then as we become believers who are serving our Savior with dedicated devotion, we begin to walk worthy of our calling as our faith continues to grow with exceeding confidence in Christ Jesus. To prove my point, well, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to take another look here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. It's here in the beginning of verse 3 where, where Paul again declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Now, you might be interested to note here that the Greek word, which is rendered grows exceedingly, well, it was used of that which increases beyond measure or escalates above an ordinary degree. And what this means here is that the faith of every believer ought to be increasing or expanding beyond measure. And with this as the goal, we must not fail to realize that our faith, it's like a spiritual muscle. You know, you have to work out your muscles for them to grow. And so our faith needs to be exercised with good workouts, if you will. Or you might just say that we need to exercise our faith with good works so that our faith can grow exceedingly strong. You know, the more we serve our Savior, the more our faith grows. The more we serve our Savior, the more our faith grows. And while we might have a little bit of faith, the, the, that mustard seed-sized faith when we're first saved, well, that faith grows as we serve our Savior. At the same time, it's also important to understand that our faith continues to grow as we study the scriptures as well. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 10. There he declares this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want more faith in your life? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Christian, listen, if you're struggling to serve your savior because you still have that little bitty mustard seed sized faith, well, well listen, I, I praise the Lord that a mustard seed sized faith will, will, will result in salvation because it's not about the measure of our faith. It's about the one we're placing our faith in, amen? But your, your faith doesn't have to stay that small. You know, Jesus makes the point that, you know, if you plant that mustard seed in the ground, it becomes a massive tree, right? And so our faith should grow as well. And if your faith is still too weak, too small to serve our Savior, then I encourage you to spend more time studying the Scriptures. You know, as we spend time studying the, the stories in the Scriptures, we, we learn more and more about the saints of God who walked worthy of their calling. We see their victories. We see their failures. We see how God was there all along to help them out. And as we study those stories and believe in them, our faith grows. Our faith continues to grow exceedingly so that we too can step up and serve our Savior. And as we step up and serve our, faith, our Savior, listen, our faith then continues to grow even more and more, even beyond measure. And in this way, we walk worthy of our kingdom calling. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, those who walk worthy are not only exceeding in their faith, but those who walk worthy are also expanding in their love. And with this as the focus, I want to take a closer look at the encouragement that Paul presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's back up once again and be, begin reading at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's continuing to commend the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they were walking worthy of their kingdom calling. And according to Paul, they were not only exceeding in their faith, but they were also abounding or expanding in their love as they learned how to love one another there within their fellowship of faith. Now for the sake of clarity, it'll help us to know here that the word love, which is found there in verse 3, it's translated from the Greek word agape, which in this context is speaking of the sacrificial love that the Lord demonstrated when he died for our sins there on the cross. 
When Jesus died for our sins there on the cross, he was demonstrating the agape love of the Lord. And I like the way that the Lord Jesus explains this in John chapter 15. It's verses 12 and 13 where Jesus declares this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says this. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The Lord Jesus here is encouraging believers to recognize that we're called to love one another, and not according to our own design, not according to our own definition, but according to his example. He presents us with the example. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He is the example of the agape love of the Lord. And he goes on to describe this love as the greatest level of love when people lay down their lives for those they love. The agape love that that led the Lord to lay down his life for our salvation is the kind of love that we are supposed to have for one another. Those who are walking worthy of our calling will become those believers who are ready to crucify their own selfish desires for the benefit of other believers. Now, with this as the goal, I want to take a closer look at the way that Paul compliments the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they were abounding in this sort of love. If you would look with me again there at verse 3. Here again he declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. It abounds towards each other. And as we take a closer look here at this verse, we can see here that the Christian who is walking worthy of their calling is not only exceeding in their faith, but we are also abounding in the agape love of the Lord for one another. Just to be clear, It'll help us to know that the word abound, which is found there in verse 3, it's actually translated from a Greek word which not only speaks of something that exists in abundance, but it was used of that which increases more and more to a superabounding or even supernatural degree. Now, as we consider the way that our love for one another is supposed to abound to a supernatural degree, we must not forget that we're not talking about brotherly love. We're not talking about the sort of love that we feel for those who, you know, we connect with, you know, in an earthly sense. You know, it's like, it's like if you're walking through the mall and you see someone else wearing that Dallas Cowboy jersey, you know, and you just start weeping with them. You know, you, there's a brotherly love in that weeping, isn't there? It's just like, yeah, I know, I know. Another horrible year, I get it. You know, there's brotherly camaraderie in that, right? We're not talking about that kind of love. That's a natural kind of love. We're not talking about the sort of erotic love that we feel when our pheromones are firing on all cylinders. We're not talking about eros or erotic love. No one said we're talking about the selfless sort of love that leads us to sacrifice our own desires so that we can serve those that the Lord is leading us to love. That's right, we've been called to love one another with a sacrificial sort of love that leads us to serve others with selfless intent. Now, just to be clear about the sort of love that we're talking about, I want to consider the way, the way that Paul defines the agape love of the Lord. If you would hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as you make your way to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that there are many liberal pastors in the church today who seem to be confused about what sort of love we're supposed to demonstrate towards one another. And as a result, you know, there are many liberal churches that are beginning to think that, you know, love means that we just love and, and love as people are, and then, you know, love is love. Love is love is love, right? Um, to quote the... Sparkle Creed that uh, was recently published. That's the way the Sparkle Creed ends. Love is love is love. So let's just love. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean love is love is love? There are different kinds of love. I love puppies and I love hamburgers, but not in the same way. 
There are different kinds of love. And so what kind of love is the Lord leading us to engage in? What these liberal churches fail to recognize is that the agape love of the Lord has nothing to do with the erotic lust that leads people to engage in sexual immorality. You know, the unmarried person who says to the person they're dating, hey, don't worry, I love you, we can do this. That's not love. Fornication is not based in love, it's based in lust. Premarital sex is not based in the agape love of the Lord, it's based in lust. So we can't just say, well, love is love is love, and so let's just love. We need a working definition of what agape love actually is, And thankfully, Paul presents this by appealing to the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Look with me here, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul's saying, hey, I can do all the works. I, I can do all the good works. But if it's not based in the love of the Lord, then it's not based in love. So what does the love of the Lord look like? Well, look at verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's providing us with a working definition of the highest form of love. And as we consider this definition, we can see here that the agape love of the Lord It has nothing to do with our lustful desires. Those who say, well, love is love is love, and so let's just love people and allow them to continue engaging in sexual morality. No, that's not the agape love of God. The agape love of God does not proudly parade itself in the streets wearing BDSM gear. That's not the love of the Lord. The agape love of the Lord has nothing to do with selfish ambitions or carnal cravings. Instead, those who are walking in the agape love of the Lord will walk in the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. Those who walk in love are walking in a way that is pleasing to Jesus. And as a result, those who are walking in the agape love of the Lord will humbly endure all manner of pain and suffering for the benefit of others. I like the way that Paul exemplified this sort of love in Romans chapter 9 where he writes this, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. In other words, Paul was willing to forfeit his own salvation so that his Hebrew kinsmen might be saved. That is an incredible level of love. He was ready to sacrifice his own salvation so that his kinsmen might trust in Jesus Christ. And it was this sacrificial love that led him to dedicate his life to serving our Savior so that some might be saved. 
and he was persecuted, and he was prosecuted, and he was condemned to death even, taken outside of city walls and stoned to death. All in the name of Jesus Christ for the sake of the salvation of those who might believe in, in, in the Lord. At the same time, this is the same sort of love that was abounding there in the church of Thessalonica as Christians continue to walk worthy of their calling. And with this in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I abounding in this kind of love? Am I abounding in the love of the Lord? Do I have a long-suffering love that is kind? Or am I puffed up with pride as I parade myself before others? Do I have a love that is concerned about the feelings of others? Or do I rudely seek my own agenda and therefore I'm easily provoked by those who don't submit to what I want? Do I rejoice in the truth? Or am I rejoicing in the immoral iniquities of those who are living for the lusts of the flesh? Do I love others enough to believe the best about them first? Or do I always jump to the worst conclusions about the intentions of others? As we take this moment just to examine our own lives, I just want to remind you of the command that Christ Jesus presented to us. It's in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christian, listen, we've been commanded to abound in the agape love of the Lord. And just to be clear, Jesus isn't referring to erotic lust, nor was he referring to a narcissistic love of self that leads us to take selfies all day long. No, instead, he's, he's saying, hey, you are to love others with self-sacrificial love. And he used himself as the example. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, Jesus laid his life down for us. Jesus received the punishment that we deserve so that we could be saved. And as we consider the way that Christ Jesus died for us so that we could be saved, well, there should be no doubt that those who want to walk worthy of our kingdom calling should abound in the sacrificial love of our Savior. As we consider Christ's command to love one another, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord is here to help. The Lord is here to help us so that we can become believers who are always abounding in the agape love of the Lord. And to to make my case here, I want to consider the prayer that Paul uh, presented back in the first letter that he sent to this same church there in Thessalonica. So continue holding your place there in 2 Thessalonians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians, and I'd like you to turn to the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. As you make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I just want to take a moment to point out that we don't have the natural ability to conjure up this sort of love. We don't have the natural ability to, you know, manufacture a super abundance of supernatural love. We're not going to be able to do this on our own. Thankfully for us, the Lord is always ready to help us so that we can walk worthy of this kingdom calling. And to prove my point, let's consider the prayer that Paul prayed here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12, here Paul declares, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Here in this verse, we find Paul praying. He's asking the Lord to help the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to increase in the agape love of the Lord. And not only that, but he also asks the Lord to help them to become believers who were then abounding, even super abounding, in the agape love of the Lord and for the benefit of other believers. As we consider this prayer that Paul presents here in 1 Thessalonians 3, we find Paul then providing us with the confirmation of answered prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
With that, let's flip forward to our text today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's back up again and take another look at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Now, uh, in the Cowboy Bible, it reads like this, The love of every one of y'all abounds toward each other. Uh, but we'll, we'll give Paul a pass. Paul's saying, hey, the, the prayer was answered. The prayer was answered. The prayer that he prayed back in 1 Thessalonians 3, we now see in 2 Thessalonians 1, the prayer was answered. The Lord helped the Christians there in Thessalonica to become believers whose love for one another was in fact increasing, even expanding to a supernatural degree here. And in this way, Paul was helping them to walk worthy of their calling by enabling them to abound in a love that doesn't naturally happen within our hearts. And listen, in similar fashion, the Lord will also help us to walk worthy. The Lord is here to help us. And so much like Paul who prayed for God's help, we too should be praying. If you think that you know, there's a brother or a sister in Christ here in our church who isn't as loving as they ought to be, pray for them. Pray for our church. Pray, let's pray for our entire congregation that we would increase and abound in the love of the Lord. And as we pray for this, the Lord is certain to answer this prayer by helping us to walk worthy as he enables us to expand in our love for one another. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, those who walk worthy will not only exceed in faith and expand in love, but we will also endure in patience. And with this as the focus Let's take a closer look at the encouragement that Paul presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's back up again and begin reading at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's not only commending the Christians there in Thessalonica for exceeding in faith and expanding in love, but he was also boasting about those believers for the way that they were patiently enduring every persecution. Now, I should remind you that it was back in the first letter that Paul sent to the church there in Thessalonica. There we learned about the way that those believers were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. I'll remind you, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. There Paul declares, you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So there we learned those believers received the word of God with much affliction. They were being persecuted for becoming believers. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 14, Paul also commended their commitment to Christ by declaring, you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. Paul was comparing their, uh, the way that they were being persecuted to the way that uh, the, the believing Jews in Jerusalem had also been persecuted. And so no doubt that the church there in Thessalonica was filled with Christians who suffered great persecution. Now here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it's verse 4 where Paul points to their enduring patience as an example that other Christians ought to follow as we set out to walk worthy of our calling. Paul is saying, hey, we've, we've bragged about you guys to the other churches because of your enduring patience. Just to be clear, that word patience found there in verse 4, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are steadfast, those who are constant, and no matter the difficulty that they're forced to endure. In a Christian context, the Greek word rendered patience, well, it's used of the believer who is not swerved or does not waver from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety 
by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Not even the greatest trials and sufferings will cause a patient saint to waver from their faith. With this definition in mind, we must not fail to notice the connection between our enduring patience and our exceeding faith. Notice again here in verse 4, Paul declares, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Here we see how the enduring patient of the Christian is closely connected to the exceeding faith that helps us to continue trusting in the Lord Jesus. And listen, those who truly trust in the Lord Jesus will begin to realize that it's always better to endure the pain of persecution for the sake of our Savior than it is to fall away from the faith for fear of the troubles and trials that we might face if we actually walk worthy of our calling. This is precisely the point that the Apostle Peter was making in his first epistle. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, as you're making your way to the third chapter of 1 Peter, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to Jewish believers who were there in the primitive church. They fled from Israel after the religious leaders of Israel started to persecute those who were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And after finally, you know, getting out into the Gentile world, and it it was by 64 AD when Emperor Nero accused Christians of starting a devastating fire there in Rome. And as a result, the Jews who had fled from persecution there in Israel found themselves in the middle of more persecution there in the Gentile world. And, And so rather than encouraging them to flee once again, Peter encouraged them to stand strong in their faith. Matter of fact, it's here in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Here Peter asks, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason. For the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It might be difficult for many of us to believe this, but according to the Apostle Peter, it's better to to patiently endure the pain of persecution as we stand with our Savior Jesus than it is to fall away from the faith for fear of being bullied by unbelievers. And, And it's sad to say that this is so hard for so many Christians to believe because, you know, we've been raised up in this culture that leads us to think that safety is always the most important thing. Safety first. You know, don't ever do anything that that you might get hurt. You know, it's just like, really? That's how you want to live your life? Constant fear that something might hurt you, that that you might have to suffer in some sort of way? Seems like a ridiculous way to live. And, And yet so many of us have bought into this belief that you know, do we just have to, we have to keep safe. We have to stay in a safe little bubble lest, you know, something bad happen to us because if something bad happened to us, we might die and have to go to heaven. Really? That's, that's your concern? You might die and go to heaven? We have to quit worrying about safety first. We have to quit worrying about, you know, someone might disagree with us online. Ooh, what? Someone might disagree with something I say online, so let me just say all the right things. Let me just, you know, approve of all of the things that are approved. Listen, we have to stop fearing bullies who, who want to silence, uh, you know, the, the Christians who want to walk worthy of our calling. And, you know, I posted one of my videos on Friday, and I talked about the pride parades where 
naked men are walking down public streets in front of little kids. And yeah, I took issue with that. And Facebook wouldn't let us boost that post for reasons they gave that didn't make any sense at all. Yeah, they want to silence a video that's trying to convince adults to stop being pedophiles. And I'm the bad guy. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I would rather suffer their rejection than stand before my Savior one day and give an explanation for why I didn't walk worthy of my calling. And listen, this lesson has never been more relevant to the church here in America than it is today. And the reason I say this is because more and more Americans are starting to uh, treat Christians like we're some sort of hate group. Much like it was during the late first century when Emperor Nero identified Christians as public enemy number one, there are political leaders on the left today who are trying to criminalize Christians by creating hate speech laws which will effectively make it illegal to speak out against the sin of sexual perversion. And it won't be long before they pull it off. Because if you look at the politics here in America, you know, it keeps moving more and more to the left. Every year it continues going further and further to the left. So it's just a matter of time before, you know, what's happened in every other communist country happens in America and Christianity is criminalized. And further proof of my point is found in the video that I presented on Friday where I talked about you know, these men who are engaging in, in crimes, walking down the street fully nude in front of little kids, and yet the cops are arresting a street preacher for, for calling that sin. The street preacher actually has a constitutional right to voice his opinion there on that street corner. And, and the men who are walking naked down the street are doing something that is illegal. It's criminal. But it's the person voicing their, their First Amendment rights who gets arrested. These are the times that we live in, and it's going to get worse. Meanwhile, many Christians are choosing to remain silent because they're, af- they're afraid of being bullied by the rainbow jihad. And it's time to stop worrying about it. It's time to stop self-editing for fear that you might lose a few friends on Facebook. This sounds like the way you've been avoiding these difficult discussions for fear of losing a few friends. I challenge you to remember that those who walk worthy of our calling will patiently endure the pain of persecution as we set out to reach people for Jesus. Listen, I'm not encouraging anybody to go out and bully people who belong to the LGBTQIA++ community. I, I don't want anybody being bullied. I want them to come to Jesus. I want them to, to, to know the love of the Lord so that they can escape the bondage that Satan has pulled them down into this dark world. The Lord wants to save them from that. And so I take issue with the conservatives who are engaging in the reverse bullying tactics. I'm not about that at all. I want these people to know Jesus so that they can be saved from their sexual sins and perversions. But we have to stop sitting in silence. We have to start preaching the gospel of grace so that they might be saved. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look with me again here at verses 4 and 5. Here Paul declares, We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer. 
Paul here is assuring his audience that the believers who patiently endure the pain of persecution are simultaneously manifesting the evidence that they are in fact walking worthy of our kingdom. In other words, those who are willing to suffer for the sake of our Savior's kingdom by going out and preaching the gospel of grace, even if it means we're going to be persecuted as a result, that Christian is simultaneously presenting the evidence of their salvation as they walk in a way that is worthy of the position that we've been given, which again is the ambassador's of our everlasting king. We've been called to serve as the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. How are you doing with that? Are you a good ambassador of the kingdom, imploring unbelievers around you to be saved? Or are you an ambassador who's sitting in silence as the world goes to hell in a handbasket? With that, I encourage you to consider the challenge that Paul presented in Colossians chapter one. It's there where he says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Christian, listen, we haven't been called to try to make a name for ourselves. If you're spending all your time trying to make a name for yourself, it's the wrong, it's the wrong road. We haven't been encouraged to look for every way to please ourselves. The Lord isn't asking Christians to be narcissists. No, instead we've been called to become ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And we do this by living a life that is fully pleasing to our king. Not fully pleasing to ourselves. I imagine that the Lord is going to call you to do many things that will not please you. But we aren't here to please ourselves. We're here to please our king. And with this as the goal, it's important to understand that we should always be ready to step up, even in the face of fear, as we prepare to walk worthy of the calling that we've received from our King. And in this way, we will run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I encourage you to remember that, you know, it is possible for disciples to be disqualified. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm just saying that it's possible for a Christian to become disqualified from serving the Lord in the way that he wanted us to serve him. And much like Jane Seville, who forfeit Olympic gold because she failed to walk worthy according to the rules, well, there are many Christians who will lose everlasting rewards simply because they failed to walk worthy of the kingdom. And with that being the case, I encourage you, let's commit ourselves to walking worthy of our kingdom calling by exceeding in faith, continuing to grow in the faith by which we were saved. We should also be expanding in love as we learn how to love one another with the agape love of the Lord. And we ought to be enduring in patience as we patiently endure the persecutions of those who are rejecting our Savior. And as we set out to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, let's prayerfully seek the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be counted worthy as we continue to walk by faith with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.